6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Dr. Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. This series is entitled, Learn the Bible in 24 Hours. In today's study, Dr. Missler completes his session entitled, The End Times. In the second coming, every eye shall see him. Rapture of the tribulation begins, or shortly thereafter, and the second coming is when the millennium begins, not the tribulation. Rapture is the church only. The second coming, there are many scholars who believe the Old Testament saved are raised after the millennium. So let's get back to this eschatology. What we've, now we've got this tribulation issue. Among those of us that are premillennial, there are three groups of variations here. And uh, there are those that believe, as I've emphasized here, that the rapture occurs before the tribulation begins. We'd call, we would call those pre-tribulational. There are others that believe that the rapture occurs at the end of the seven year, 70th week of Daniel, and they're post-tribulation. We'll talk about the ones in the middle. In Matthew 24, verse 21, Jesus is responding to a private briefing to four disciples about a second coming. When he gets to verse 21, he says, For then shall be great tribulation, such as was, since, was not since the beginning of the world to this time, nor ever shall be. And except those days should be shortened, there should no flesh be saved, but for the elect's sake, those days shall be shortened. Jesus here, in effect, is quoting from Daniel chapter 12, verse 1. He is labeling this period as the Great Tribulation. He gives it that very label. The Holocaust in Germany took one Jew out of three on the planet Earth. Zechariah 13, verse 8 and 9 indicates that this next one will take two out of three. That's a very disturbing revelation. I didn't say that. Zechariah did. Chapter 13, verse 8 and 9. Great Tribulation. It gets its label from Christ's quote here. He's quoting from Daniel 12. At that time shall Michael stand up, the great prince, which standeth for the children of thy people, and there shall be a time of trouble such was never, as never was since there was a nation even to that same time. And at that time thy people shall be delivered, every one that shall be found uh, written in the book. Another label for this period of time is the time of Jacob's trouble. Because the focus of the Great Tribulation is worldwide, but it's on Israel. It's focusing on Israel. Alas, for the day is great, so that none is like it. It is even the time of Jacob's trouble, but he shall be saved out of it. Jeremiah 30, verse 7. So we have this famed seven week that we studied so much in Daniel. The last, and it's punctuated in the middle by this peculiar event called the abomination of desolation. Paul's second letter of Thessalonians talks about him setting himself up in, 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 as God in the, in the Holy of Holies. From that event to the end of the seven-year period, a three-and-a-half-year period, is the Great Tribulation. I want to call your attention to the fact the Great Tribulation is not seven years long, it's three-and-a-half. People tend to use the term of the Great Tribulation for the whole week. Technically, Jesus himself defines it as the last half of that week. Not a big deal, but be sensitive to the precision here. If you're going to be serious about the Bible, watch the definitions. The second coming concludes that 70th week and sets up, of course, the millennium. So far, so good. The big debate comes, okay, where does the rapture take place? 
people who are amillennial in the first place generally assume that the rapture or the, the, the resurrection, if you'll call it, they wouldn't call it the rapture probably, but the resurrection occurs at the end of that 70th week. That's called post-tribulationalism. And there's all different kinds. Even the authors that hold those views all have different views. There's no, there isn't a single consistent view. They all have different variations because they're all dealing with allegorization of the Scripture in the first place. There's some problems with the post-trib view. It denies the teaching of eminency. If the uh, rapture doesn't occur until the end of the seven years, it can't happen tomorrow. Donald Gray Barnhouse used to kid his students when he came in the office. He said, sad day, sad day, Jesus can't come back today. Meaning that if you're post-tribulation, you've got to wait seven years at least, maybe more. No, the the, clearly we're taught to expect him at any time. The post-tribulation view also requires the church to be on the earth during the 70th week, which also is contradicted by a number of passages. Also, the, the post-tribulational view uh, argues that the church will experience God's wrath, even though we were promised that it would not participate it in several passages. And the other thing, how can the bride come with him if he's coming at the end of that? See, you get some contradictions. There are other problems. You get into problems, who's going to populate the millennium? Because the unsaved are condemned, and the ones that are saved are immortal, and who's populating the millennium that's going to have kids and die, and so on. So there's some issues there. And where, who are the sheep and goat judgment of Matthew 25 is an issue. And how can the virgins of Matthew 25 buy oil without the mark of the beast? And you get into some, you just discover this, if you're take, you, you, you can't hold that view and take the Bible with precision. You end up having to allegorize these things. So uh, that's the one view. The view that we lean towards, obviously, is called pre-tribulational premillennialism. We believe a literal millennium, of course, but we also believe that the Rapture will occur before the tribulation. But what we mean by that, we actually believe it's not only is it before the tribulation, it's before the 70th week even begins. I want you to notice, now there are, oh, there are some people that recognize the tribulation is technically just that last half of the week. So they believe they'll be raptured by the middle of the week, still before the tribulation, but in the middle of the 70th week of Daniel. Rosenthal, pre, so-called pre-wrath. There's a number of positions that are variations of that. They all have the same problem. They all deny eminency. Anything that requires you to be in or any part of that week means it can't happen tomorrow. And yet we're told again and again the doctrine of eminency implies that Jesus can come for us at any moment. And that's clearly what he taught us. And so all these other views contradict that issue. But I want you to know something else. We don't put our little arrow up what the beginning of the seventh week, some people make charts a little sloppily. We don't know what the interval of time is between the time the rapture takes place and the time that the Antichrist gets revealed, becomes powerful enough to enforce a treaty, and then enforces a treaty with Israel for seven years. That could be one day, it could be 30 years, we have no idea. So there's an interval. I don't know how long. It might be measured in hours or months or years between the rapture and the beginning of the seventh week of Daniel. It probably isn't long for lots of reasons, but there is an interval as, as we see it. So the rapture precedes the tribulation because the seventh week is defined by the covenant enforced by the leader. The great tribulation is the last half of that week. The leader cannot be revealed until after the rapture. So that's, that's, that's the buildup of that timing, if you will. If you really verify this for yourself in your studies, it will clear, clarify, a, lift a great deal of confusion that tends to occupy this area of study. Again, the order of events. The day of the Lord can't come until the apostasia, whatever that is. 
which in turn, then the restrainer is removed in any case. And the man of sin is revealed, which is all before the seventh week of Daniel. You with me? Therefore, before the tribulation. Okay, so we've talked about those, the different portions of, of eschatology. We've talked about the pre-trib, mid-trib, and post-trib. Amillennial, post-trib accommodates most denominations have inherited that from the medieval church originally. Most of us that are fundamentalists take the Bible very literally, fall on the other end. Uh, we're typically premillennial, pre-tribulational in our, in our viewpoints. There, therein lies the, 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 the map, if you will, of, of eschatological views. From allegorical to literal. Depends what your hermeneutics are. Now many people say pre-tribulation is a, a new invention. That's not true. It's written in the Epistle of Barnabas in the first century. Irenaeus in, in his treatise against heresies. Hippolytus in the second century. Just martyr, the early church fathers. One of the most interesting documents was just discovered a few years ago by Ephraim the Syrian. Most of us inherit our understanding of the church history from the Western Church, Western Europe. You need to remember that the Eastern tradition goes deeper and longer by a thousand years. And one of the most prolific writers in the Greek tradition was a guy by the name of Ephraim the Syrian, wrote in the fourth century. And uh, he wrote one of his, one, most of his stuff has never been translated from Greek to English. In one of his sermons, the title of which was on the last times, the Antichrist, the end of the world. In one of his sermons, he, this is, we're talking guy now, for, this is fourth century. It says, for all the saints and the elect of God are gathered prior to the tribulation that is to come and are taken to the Lord lest they see the confusion that is to overwhelm the world because of our sins. This is a pre-trib position taught uh, way back in the early Greek church. Uh, we also, you can go all through the ancient commentaries. This is not a new idea. There are people opposed to this view that try to promote the idea it was invented in the early 1800s. That's not true. What did happen in the 1800s, a guy by the name of Emmanuel Lacunza popularized this. A guy by the name of Edward Irving and John Darby and Margaret MacDonald followed suit. And they were, there was a, a big revival and an emphasis on this view. But you'll actually, if you do your homework, in terms of church history, you'll discover these views were held by a minority from the beginning, all through history. They're the ones that are typically abused by the denominational interests, whether they're Catholic or Protestant. But something else, standing away from all this, you realize there are three groups of people facing the judgment called the Flood of Noah. Those that perished in the Flood, of course, is one group. Those that were preserved through the Flood, the eight people on that ark, and there's a third group, those that were removed prior to the flood. Enoch, remember? Now you say, well, Chuck, that's just one person. So is the body of Christ one person. Paul emphasized that we are one body and so forth. So idiomatically, at least, we are one. So I'm, I'm very fascinated by this because I want to suggest to you that Enoch was not mid-flood or post-flood. He was pre-flood. Okay. <laughs> okay. But what's interesting, I've stumbled on something that fascinates me. In the, among the rabbinical traditions, they believe that Enoch was born on the day that they happened to observe Hag Shavuot. He also, the tradition they have from some ancient rabbinical writings is that Enoch was translated, or if I can say that, use the term raptured, on that same day. In other words, he was translated on his birthday. What makes this provocative to me, Hag Shavuot is the Hebrew term for what we would call the Feast of Weeks or the Feast of Pentecost. That was when the church was born in Acts chapter 2. And I can't resist speculating or conjecturing, is it possible 
that if Enoch is a type of the church, is it possible that the church also will be translated on his birthday? I don't know. Now, I don't want to set dates. Don't start doing that to me. But because Jesus said, the day you think not, the Son of Man cometh. But if that's the day you think not, then that's maybe the day you'll come. Right? Okay. Stay away from date setters. We could, it's astonishing to make a chronicle of the people who have set dates way back in the 13th century on. And I won't go through all these. I mentioned John Napier was one of them back in the 17th century. And many others. William Whitson said it was going, he was coming back in 1715. And then he decided it was 1734. And then he moved it out to 1866, which I'm sure was beyond his retirement age. Um, uh, and then uh, William Miller, 1843. And then he decided it was October 22nd, 1844. C.T. Russell, 1874. Remember E.C. E. Wisenant's 88 Reasons for 88. If you have any of those old books, save them. They'll be collector's items. Uh, Harold Camping, and it was sure it was September 1994. And of course, since we passed the year 2000, you can you know, all kinds of people are going to waltz out charts or formulas and whatever. And, and uh, uh, the date setters are always there. Let's just look what the Scripture says. Of that day and hour knoweth no man, know not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. Matthew goes on, Watch therefore, for ye know not what hour the Lord doth come. Therefore be ye also ready, for in such an hour as ye think not the Son of Man cometh. Watch therefore, for ye know neither the day nor the hour wherein the Son of Man cometh. You'd think that the point would be made, we don't set dates, right? We, times and seasons, sure, but not dates. We don't set dates. Luke says, for Therefore be ready also, for the Son of Man cometh at an hour when ye think not. Indeed, indeed. He said unto them, It is not for you to know the times and seasons which the Father hath put in His own power. Luke, again, Luke, volume 2, book of Acts. There's another disease that I think is primarily American. This is a malady, a, a, a mania, a de mental derangement that occurs primarily in the United States. I call it rapture-itis. Uh, there is a, a, a tendency by people who get caught up in this rapture to see him just around the corner. And that's fine. That God tells us to expect him any moment. But they also, what they end up doing is putting their feet on the desk and kicking back and say, boy, he's coming from a week from Tuesday. Why pay off that mortgage? Why send our kids to college? He's coming back soon. Uh, you know, many of those teenagers that came off the drug scene in the early 70s are now pastors of churches and uh, handing the churches over to their sons because time has slipped by, if you haven't noticed. There, this idea that somehow we're not going to be facing... First of all, it's a question of stewardship. Jesus said, occupy till I come. So it's a question of stewardship. But it's also, we need to have an expectation of persecution. Jesus promised us persecution. Don't confuse persecution with that particular period of time called the Great Tribulation, the time of Jacob's trouble. And uh, this is a form of arrogance. Just because I think I can prove to you the church will not go through the Great Tribulation, why should we, as Americans, say, escape what most of the body of Christ in most of the world for most of the 2,000 years that have passed had to endure? Not the Great Tribulation, it's just persecution. God, Christ promised it to us. And indeed, we can expect that. Yes, and here in America. It's been predicted by some scholars that not only will the real body of Christ have to go underground in America, it's the persecution against it will be led by the denominational churches. That sounds preposterous at first. It certainly did, I'm sure, 20 years ago when J. Vernon McGee first announced that. 
But the more you watch the tide of our culture and the use of hate crimes, these Christians in Philadelphia that were attacked and discovered that 10% of the attorneys in the federal government are, are, are homosexuals. When you examine what they did, all they were doing they were, you know, is, is reading from the scripture in the public. And uh, they're facing judicial process around right at this point. If you want to what time it is, of course, you look at God's timepiece. But there are other issues we haven't had time to look at. The rise of the European superstate, we didn't take a look at that, but we did when we were in Daniel. The rise of the Far East, the, the refuge in Edom, where he, the Jews will flee from Jerusalem when the Antichrist does his thing. The Battle of Armageddon, we have in detail. We'll talk about that somewhat in the next hour, or in the, uh, in the hour after next. The Magog invasion, the rebuilding of the temple, and the rebuilding of Babylon. These last three things are, in effect, topics that should be touched upon in a review of eschatology. Let's just take a quick look at it. Now, we've talked about the Magog invasion, how that the Battle of Armageddon is at the end of the 70th week of Daniel. We talked about that before. We know that the temple will be standing by the middle of that week, because James, Paul, and uh, Jesus all talk about it. The Magog invasion of Ezekiel 38 we talked about, it's classically viewed as occurring at the end of the uh, tribulation by Hal Lindsey and, and other very competent scholars on the one hand, but there are many of us that have a slightly different view. We think the Magog invasion occurs before the 70th week for a number of technical reasons. So there's that debate. But what I bring it up primarily for this reason, what we all agree on is the Magog invasion does occur after the rapture of the church. So to the extent the Magog invasion seems to be on a horizon, and many experts in the strategic arena believe so, uh, then uh, that means the rapture is even closer. So that's pretty exciting. And we could talk more on that, but let's move on. The coming temple. Jesus mentioned it in Matthew 24. Paul in 2 Thessalonians 2 we saw. John will mention it when we get to Revelation 11. The rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem. This is just, of course, a model of the, how they think it was reconstructed at one time. Here's an aerial photograph of the region taken from the northwest looking southeast. The Dome of the Rock, the Al-Aqsa Mosque, and the western wall between, you know, on the, on the side there, and, uh, which is often photographed where they go to pray and so on. This is, the, this is actually not the, it's just the retaining wall that held the temple area. If you go up to the temple area, you'd go up on a right through the Mugrabi Gate and onto the, onto the platform. Here's an aerial view of the Temple Mount with north at the top. We have the traditional view is that the, the original temple stood where the Dome of the Rock stands today. That is the official view of the, the nation of Israel, but it's not the view of the scientists that have studied this carefully. There is a northern conjecture popularized by Dr. Asher Kaufman. He's a good friend. Chuck Smith and I funded his original research. Uh, he has a number of reasons why he believes that the temple stood about 100 meters to the north of the Dome of the Rock. There's a number of reasons he defends that view. It may, what caused a big stir many decades ago when this first surfaced is that would put the Dome of the Rock in that region called the uh, Court of the Gentiles. And that complies, in a sense, with the passages that we'll encounter in Revelation 11. That created quite a stir. However, there are some problems remaining. If you try to create a three-dimensional model of the temple area, you run into some problems. Because there's a, if you take the Tesefta, the Mishnah, the Tanakh, the Old Testament, Josephus, and a few other things, and try to put that together, Agrippa had a view of the Azara, the place where they offered, that just, just doesn't work. The Romans could also see from the wall what was going on in the Azara. Azara is that part of the temple where they did the offerings. 
and you can't, it just doesn't work three-dimensionally. There's also a water aqueduct, parts of which are still in place, that fed the temple, and it implies if the, if the temple stood at the Dome of the Rock, it's 21 meters too high. It would have to be further south at lower elevation, because the, the, the bedrock drops going south. And the, there's also a location of a moat issue, and anyway, the, all, when you start looking at these carefully, it implies that the, the temple stood south of the Dome of the Rock. Now you need to understand a little history here. In 70 AD, of course, Jerusalem fell. In 132 AD, Bar Kokhba had his ill-fated revolt. It took the Romans about three years to get their act together. He, he actually had wiped out the 12th legion, something they never recovered from, but the Romans finally get their act together. They regained Jerusalem, but by then Hadrian, Emperor Hadrian, decides they can never re rule that land as long as there's a Jewish presence in Jerusalem. So they bury the entire city, plow it under, build a Roman city on top of it called Aila Capitolina, named after Hadrian's. Then the uh, temple to Jupiter was built over the site of the Jewish temple. From Jerome's commentary on Isaiah, we know there was an equestrian statue of Hadrian installed right over the Holy of Holies. Well, the question is, where did the, was this temple built? Well, we don't know, but uh, some architects in Tel Aviv noticed something very strange. They noticed that the Dome of the Rock, the Alcaz Fountain, and the Aqsa Mosque are on a center line. And that applies to an architect, a plan of some kind, a vestige of something that stood there earlier. Tuvia Segev is the main champion, this is also a good friend. Up in Baalbek, Lebanon, the, the uh, Romans built a temple, and uh, as people who study how the, how the uh, Romans built temples, they had an architectural pattern, this looked better from the top, they had a temple, a rectangular temple, a courtyard, and then a polygon or circle structure called a rotunda at the other end, and uh, they put their, their statues and stuff in, the, in this uh, courtyard in between. If you take the temple at Baalbek, exactly as it's sitting there. It is built around a hexagon, not an octagon, but other than that, if you take that, go to the Aila Capitoline or, or Jerusalem, and put it there, it fits perfectly, the, uh, the, the situation that's there. The Al-Aqsa Mosque has been rebuilt six times due to earthquake damage. It's not exactly the same size anymore. The Dome of the Rock is an octagon, not a hexagon. But other than that, it fits perfectly, and that implies then right over the uh, statue of Hadrian would be, was, is over the Alcaz fountain, which is stating there. So that, there seems to be increasing evidence that that's the correct conjecture. So this, this temple was, and Jerusalem was built by the same guy who built the one in Lebanon at about the same time. And so Hadrian's statue is right over the Holy of Holies, it would seem, and so we think we know where that is. And so this is the, what I'll call the southern conjecture. The traditional view is in the middle, and Asher Calvin's view is the north. So we've got these three different views that uh, will only be resolved if we can get good access and uh, take care of it. This is an infrared photograph flying over the Dome of the Rock, and we notice a pentagonal structure underneath it, which implies that it was part of the Antonia Fortress. If you take an infrared profile of the wall from Mount of Olives, we notice a couple of interesting things. You notice uh, the place there's a, the, where the Golden Gate, the so-called Eastern Gate is, there really isn't. There's a once first century gate there, but down where the temple is, there is behind that wall infrared evidence of another entrance. The bedrock falls far enough that you could build the temple to where it originally stood without touching the Temple Mount, because it's low enough in altitude. Now, I'm not suggesting I do this. It's just one proposal that is kind of interesting to throw up. 
Okay, one other thing I'd like to profile quickly for you. We studied Babylon when we were in Isaiah 13 and 14 and Jeremiah 15 and 51. That it would never again be inhabited after it's destroyed and building materials not reused. This is a picture of Babylon today. Here's an aerial photograph. This is a city 55 miles south of Baghdad. In this aerial photograph, you can see Saddam Hussein's palace that is prominent, the original rubble of the Tower of Babel. And if you blow that region up larger, you can see the processional way and the palace of Nebuchadnezzar. And when you blow that up, it's uh, been rebuilt. Not completely, but it's substan it implies that it is yet to, re to reemerge to prominence in order to receive the judgment that occurs in Isaiah 13 and Jeremiah 50. So uh, this is interesting because it's on our horizon today. There are many people who think this is silliness. All we need to do is sit back and watch. Do your homework and see what happens. The museum where Nebuchadnezzar had the things he took from the Jerusalem 70 years earlier before Belshazzar had his party and you know the story. Okay, the challenge. You and I are being plunged into a period of time about which the Bible says more than it does about any other period of time in history including the time that Jesus walked the shores of Galilee or climbed the mountains of Judea. That's our preposterous challenge. To challenge a statement, I ask you to do two things. Find out what the Bible says and find out what is really going on. The more you know about both of those, the more you'll see a concurrence. We monitor strategic trends. We publish a news journal and I have a website that tries to monitor strategic trends. These are a few of them, the primary ones. They're all biblically relevant. They're also areas of intelligence gathering in terms of the changes occurring on our immediate horizon. It's, it isn't any one of them, it's all of them that orchestrate uh, the view that we're moving to an, horizon, uh, an exciting horizon. So with that, let's do two things. Study your Bible and make the effort to find out what's really happening. And you won't do that on the 10 o'clock news. You've got to do a little homework. But with internet and alternative press and other resources available to you, it's not hard to find out what's happening. But the more you know what's happening, the more exciting it is, because we are moving into the final climax of human history. God bless you. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Dr. Chuck Missler. For a complete listing of resources available, please contact the station or go to khouse.org. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Until next time, may God richly bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.